Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tonight, I will be continuing the story of The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. So lie down. Close your eyes and let me read you a story. Chapter 5 
Tom as a patrician. Tom Canty, left alone in the prince's cabinet, made good use of his opportunity. He turned himself this way and that before the great mirror, admiring his finery, then walked away, imitating the prince's high-bred carriage and still observing results in the glass. Next he drew the beautiful sword and bowed, kissing the blade and laying it across his breast as he had seen a noble knight do, by way of salute to the lieutenant of the tower, five or six weeks before, when delivering the great lords of Norfolk and Surrey into his hands for captivity. Tom played with the jeweled dagger that hung upon his thigh. He examined the costly and exquisite ornaments of the room. He tried each of the sumptuous chairs and thought how proud he would be if the awful court heard, could only peep in and see him in his grandeur. He wondered if they would believe the marvellous tale he should tell when he got home, or if they would shake their heads and say his overtaxed imagination had at last upset his reason. At the end of half an hour, it suddenly occurred to him that the prince was gone a long time. Then right away he began to feel lonely. Very soon he fell to listening and longing and ceased to toy with the pretty things about him. He grew uneasy, then restless, then distressed. Suppose someone should come and catch him in the prince's clothes and the prince not there to explain. Might they not hang him at once and inquire into his case afterward? He had heard that the great were prompt about small matters. His fear rose higher and higher, and trembling, he softly opened the door to the antechamber, resolved to fly and seek the prince, and through him, protection and release. Six gorgeous gentlemen servants and two young pages of high degree, clothed like butterflies, sprang to their feet and bowed low before him. He stepped quickly back and shut the door. He said, Oh, they mock me. They will go and tell. Oh, why came I here to cast away my life? He walked up and down the floor, filled with nameless fears, listening, starting at every trifling sound. Presently the door swung open and a silken page said, The Lady Jane Grey. The door closed and a sweet young girl richly clad, bounded toward him. But she stopped suddenly and said in a distressed voice, Oh, what aileth thee, my lord? Tom's breath was nearly failing him, but he made shift to stammer out, Ah, be merciful thou. In sooth, I am no lord, but only poor Tom Canty of awful court in the city. Prithee let me see the prince, and he will of his grace restore to me my rags and let me hence unhurt. O be thou merciful, and save me. By this time the boy was on his knees, and supplicating with his eyes, and uplifted hands, as well as with his tongue. The young girl seemed horror-stricken. She cried out, O my lord, on thy knees, and to me. Then she fled away in fright, and Tom, smitten with despair, sank down, murmuring, There is no help. There is no hope. Now will they come and take me. Whilst he lay there, benumbed with terror, dreadful tidings were speeding through the palace. The whisper, for it was whispered always, 
flew from menial to menial, from lord to lady, down all the long corridors, from story to story, from saloon to saloon. The prince hath gone mad. The prince hath gone mad. Soon every saloon, every marble hall, had its groups of glittering lords and ladies, and other groups of dazzling lesser folk, talking earnestly together in whispers, and every face had in it dismay. Presently, a splendid official came marching by these groups, making solemn proclamation. In the name of the king, let none list to this false and foolish matter upon pain of death, nor discuss the same, nor carry it abroad, in the name of the king. The whispering ceased as suddenly as if the whisperers had been stricken dumb. Soon there was a general buzz along the corridors of the prince. See, the prince comes. Poor Tom came slowly, walking past the low-bowing groups, trying to bow in return, and meekly gazing upon his strange surroundings with bewildered and pathetic eyes. Great nobles walked upon each side of him, making him lean upon them, and so steady his steps. Behind him followed the court physicians and some servants. Presently, Tom found himself in a noble apartment of the palace and heard the door close behind him. Around him stood those who had come with him. Before him, at a little distance, reclined a very large and a very fat man with a wide, pulpy face and a stern expression. His large head was very grey and his whiskers, which he wore only around his face like a frame, were grey also. His clothing was of rich stuff, but old, and slightly frayed in places. One of his swollen legs had a pillow under it, and was wrapped in bandages. There was silence now, and there was no head there, but was bent in reverence, except this man's. This stern, countenanced invalid was the dread Henry VIII. He said, and his face grew gentle as he began to speak, How now, my lord Edward? my prince, hast been minded to cousin me, the good king thy father, who loveth thee, and kindly useth thee with a sorry jest. Poor Tom was listening, as well as his dazzled faculties would let him, to the beginning of this speech. But when the words, me the good king, fell upon his ear, his face blanched, and he dropped as instantly upon his knees as if a shot had brought him there. Lifting up his hands, he exclaimed, Thou the king? Then I am undone indeed. This speech seemed to stun the king. His eyes wandered from face to face, aimlessly, and rested, bewildered, upon the boy before him. Then he said in a tone of deep disappointment, Alack, I had believed the rumour disproportioned to the truth, but I fear me it is not so. He breathed a very heavy sigh, and said in a gentle voice, Come to thy father, child. Thou art not well. Tom was assisted to his feet and approached the majesty of England, humble and trembling. The king took the frightened face between his hands and gazed earnestly and lovingly into it a while, as if seeking some grateful sign of returning reason there, and pressed the curly head against his breast and patted it tenderly. Presently, he said, Dost not know thy father, child? Break not mine old heart, say thou knowest me. Thou dost know me, dost thou not? Yes, 
thou art my dread lord the king, whom God preserve. True, true, that is well. Be comforted. Tremble not so. There is none here would hurt thee. There is none here but loves thee. Thou art better now. Thy ill dream passeth. Is not so? Thou wilt not miscall thyself again, as they say didst a little while agone. I pray thee of thy grace, believe me, I did but speak the truth, most dread lord. For I am the meanest among thy subjects, being a pauper born, and tis by a sore mischance and accident I am here, albeit I was therein nothing blameful. I am but young to die, and thou canst save me with one little word. O speak it, sir. Die? Talk not so, sweet prince. Peace, peace to thy troubled heart. Thou shalt not die. Tom dropped upon his knees with a glad cry. God requite thy mercy, O my king, and save thee long to bless thy land. Then springing up, he turned a joyful face toward the two lords in waiting and exclaimed, Thou heardst it, I am not to die. The king hath said it. There was no movement, save that all bowed with grave respect, but no one spoke. He hesitated, a little confused, then turned timidly toward the king, saying, I may go now? Go? Surely if thou desirest. But why not tarry yet a little? Whither wouldst thou go? Tom dropped his eyes and answered humbly. Peradventure I mistook, but I did think me free, and so was I moved to seek again the kennel where I was born and bred to misery, yet which harboureth my mother and my sisters, and so is home to me, whereas these pomps and splendours whereunto I am not used. Oh, please you, sir, to let me go. The king was silent and thoughtful a while, and his face betrayed a growing distress and uneasiness. Presently, he said, with something of hope in his voice, Perchance he is but mad upon this one strain, and hath his wits unmarred as toucheth other matter. God send it may be so. We will make a trial. Then he asked Tom a question in Latin and Tom answered him lamely in the same tongue. The lords and doctors manifested their gratification also. The king said, "'Twas not according to his schooling and ability, but showeth that his mind is but diseased, not stricken fatally. How say you, sir? The physician addressed, bowed low, and replied, "'It jumpeth with my own conviction, sire, that thou hast divined aright. The king looked pleased with this encouragement, coming as it did from so excellent authority, and continued with good heart. Now, mark ye all, we will try him further. He put a question to Tom in French. Tom stood silent a moment, embarrassed by having so many eyes centred upon him, then said diffidently, I have no knowledge of this tongue, so please your majesty. The king fell back upon his couch. The attendants flew to his assistance, but he put them aside and said, Trouble me not. It is nothing but a scurvy faintness. Raise me. There, tis sufficient. Come hither, child. There. Rest thy poor, troubled head upon thy father's heart, and be at peace. Thou'lt soon be well. Tis but a passing fancy. Fear thou not. Thou'lt soon be well. Then he turned toward the company, his gentle manner changed and baleful lightnings began to play from his eyes. 
he said, List ye all. This my son is mad, but it is not permanent. Overstudy hath done this, and somewhat too much of confinement. Away with his books and teachers, see ye to it. Pleasure him with sports, beguile him in wholesome ways, so that his health come again. He raised himself higher still, and went on with energy. He is mad, but he is my son, and England's heir, and, mad or sane, still shall he reign. And hear ye further, and proclaim it. Whoso speaketh of this, his distemper worketh against the peace and order of these realms, and shall to the gallows. Give me to drink, I burn. This sorrow sappeth my strength. There, take away the cup. Support me. There, that is well. Mad is he? Were he a thousand times mad, yet he is still Prince of Wales, and I the king will confirm it. This very morrow shall he be installed in his princely dignity in due and ancient form. Take instant order for it, my lord Hartford. One of the nobles knelt at the royal couch and said, The king's majesty knoweth that the hereditary great marshal of England lieth attainted in the tower. It were not meet that one attainted peace. Insult not mine ears with his hated name. Is this man to live forever? Am I to be balked of my will? Is the prince to tarry uninstalled, because, forsooth, the realm lacketh an air-marshal free of treasonable taint to invest him with his honours? No, by the splendour of God. Warn my parliament to bring me Norfolk's doom before the sun rise again, else shall they answer for it grievously. Lord Hartford said, The king's will is law, and rising, returned to his former place. Gradually, the wrath faded out of the old king's face, and he said, Kiss me, my prince, there. What fearest thou? Am I not thy loving father? Thou art good to me, that I'm unworthy, O mighty and gracious lord, that in truth I know. But, but it grieveth me to think of him that is to die, and, ah, tis like thee, tis like thee. I know thy heart is still the same, even though thy mind hath suffered hurt. For thou wert ever a gentle spirit. But this duke standeth between thee and thine honours. I will have another in his stead that shall bring no taint to his great office. Comfort thee, my prince. Trouble not thy poor head with this matter. But is it not I that speed him hence, my liege? How long might he not live but for me? Take no thought of him, my prince. He is not worthy. Kiss me once again, and go to thy trifles and amusements, for my malady distresses me. I am a-weary, and would rest. Go with thine uncle Hartford and thy people, and come again when my body is refreshed. Tom, heavy-hearted, was conducted from the presence. For this last sentence was a death-blow to the hope he had cherished, that now he would be set free. Once more he heard the buzz of low voices exclaiming, The prince, the prince comes. His spirits sank lower and lower as he moved between the glittering files of bowing courtiers, for he recognized that he was indeed a captive now, and might remain forever shut up in this gilded cage, a forlorn and friendless prince, except God in his mercy take pity on him and set him free. And turn where he would, he seemed to see floating in the air the severed head and the remembered face 
of the great Duke of Norfolk, the eyes fixed on him reproachfully. His old dreams had been so pleasant, but this reality was so dreary. Chapter 6 Tom Receives Instructions Tom was conducted to the principal apartment of a noble suite and made to sit down, a thing which he was loath to do since there were elderly men and men of high degree about him. He begged them to be seated also, but they only bowed their thanks or murmured them and remained standing. He would have insisted, but his uncle, the Earl of Hartford, whispered in his ear, Prithee, insist not, my lord, it is not meet that they sit in their presence. The Lord St. John was announced, and after making obeisance to Tom, he said, I come upon the king's errand concerning a matter which requireth privacy. Will it please your royal highness to dismiss all that attend you here, save my lord, the Earl of Hartford? Observing that Tom did not seem to know how to proceed, Hartford whispered to him to make a sign with his hand and not to trouble himself to speak unless he chose. When the waiting gentlemen have retired, Lord St. John said, His Majesty commandeth that for due and weighty reasons of state, the Prince's grace shall hide his infirmity in all ways that be within his power, till it be past, and he be as he was before. To wit, that he shall deny to none that he is the true Prince and heir to England's greatness, that he shall uphold his princely dignity, and shall receive without word or sign of protest that reverence and observance which unto it do appertain of right and ancient usage, that he shall cease to speak to any of that lowly birth and life his malady hath conjured out of the unwholesome imaginings of o'erwrought fancy, that he shall strive with diligence to bring unto his memory again those faces which he was wont to know, and where he faileth, he shall hold his peace, neither betraying by semblance of surprise or other sign that he hath forgot, that upon occasions of state, whensoever any matter shall perplex him as to the thing he should do or the utterance he should make, he shall show naught of unrest to the curious that look on, but take advice in that matter of the Lord of Hartford or my humble self, which are commanded of the king, to be upon his service and at close call till this commandment be dissolved. Thus saith the King's Majesty, who sendeth greeting to your Royal Highness, and prayeth that God will, of his mercy, quickly heal you, and have you now and ever in his holy keeping. The Lord St. John made reverence and stood aside. Tom replied resignedly, The King hath said it, none may palter with the King's command, or fit it to his ease, where it doth chafe with deft evasions. The king shall be obeyed. Lord Hartford said, Touching the king's majesty's ordainment concerning books and such like serious matters, it may, peradventure, please your highness to ease your time with lightsome entertainment, lest you go weary to the banquet and suffer harm thereby. Tom's face showed inquiring surprise and a blush followed when he saw Lord St. John's eyes bent sorrowfully upon him. His lordship said, Thy memory still wrongeth thee, and thou hast shown surprise, but suffer it not to trouble thee, for tis a matter that will not abide, but depart with thy mending malady. 
My Lord of Hartford speaketh of the city's banquet, which the King's Majesty did promise, some two months flown. Your Highness should attend. Thou recallest now? It grieves me to confess it had indeed escaped me, said Tom in a hesitating voice, and blushed again. At this moment the Lady Elizabeth and the Lady Jane Grey were announced. The two lords exchanged significant glances, and Hartford stepped quickly toward the door. As the young girls passed him, he said in a low voice, I pray ye ladies seem not to observe his humours, nor show surprise when his memory doth lapse. It will grieve you to note how it doth stick at every trifle. Meantime, Lord St. John was saying in Tom's ear, Please you, sir, keep diligently in mind his majesty's desire. Remember all thou canst, seem to remember all else. Let them not perceive that thou art much changed from thy wont. Thou knowest how tenderly thy old playfellows bear thee in their hearts, and how it would grieve them. Art willing, sir, that I remain, and thine uncle? Tom signified assent with a gesture, and a murmured word, for he was already learning, and in his simple heart was resolved to acquit himself as best he might, according to the king's command. In spite of every precaution, the conversation among the young people became a little embarrassing at times. More than once, in truth, Tom was near to breaking down and confessing himself unequal to his tremendous part. But the tact of the Princess Elizabeth saved him, or a word from one or the other of the vigilant lords, thrown in, apparently by chance, had the same happy effect. Once the little Lady Jane turned to Tom and dismayed him with this question. Hast paid thy duty to the Queen's Majesty today, my lord? Tom hesitated, looked distressed, and was about to stammer out something at hazard when Lord St. John took the word and answered for him with the easy grace of a courtier accustomed to encounter delicate difficulties and to be ready for them. He hath indeed, madame, and she did greatly hearten him as touching His Majesty's condition. Is it not so, Your Highness? Tom mumbled something that stood for assent, but felt he was getting upon dangerous ground. Somewhat later it was mentioned that Tom was to study no more at present, whereupon her little ladyship exclaimed, Tis a pity, tis a pity, thou wert proceeding bravely, but by thy time and patience it will not be for long. Thou'lt yet be graced with learning like thy father, and make thy tongue master of as many languages as his. Good, my prince. My father, cried Tom, off his guard for a moment. I trow he cannot speak his own, so that any but the swine that kennel in the styes may tell his meaning. And as for learning of any sort, soever. He looked up and encountered a solemn warning in my lord St. John's eyes. He stopped, blushed, then continued low and sadly. Ah, my malady persecuteth me again, and my mind wandereth. I meant the king's grace, no irreverence. We know it, sir, said the Princess Elizabeth, taking her brother's hand with her two palms, respectfully but caressingly. Trouble not thyself as to that. The fault is none of thine, but thy distempers. Thou art a gentle comforter, sweet lady, said Tom gratefully, and my heart moveth me to thank thee for it. May I be so bold. Once the giddy little Lady Jane fired a simple Greek phrase at Tom. 
the Princess Elizabeth's quick eye saw by the serene blankness of the target's front that the shaft was overshot, so she tranquilly delivered a return volley of sounding Greek on Tom's behalf and then straightway changed the talk to other matters. Time wore on pleasantly and likewise smoothly on the whole. Snags and sandbars grew less and less frequent, and Tom grew more and more at his ease, seeing that all were so lovingly bent upon helping him and overlooking his mistakes. When it came out that the little ladies were to accompany him to the Lord Mayor's banquet in the evening, his heart gave a bound of relief and delight, for he felt that he should not be friendless now among that multitude of strangers. Whereas an hour earlier, the idea of their going with him would have been an insupportable terror to him. Tom's guardian angels, the two lords, had had less comfort in the interview than the other parties to it. They felt much as if they were piloting a great ship through a dangerous channel. They were on alert constantly and found their office no child's play. Wherefore at last, when the lady's visit was drawing to a close, and the Lord Guilford Dudley was announced, they not only felt that their charge had been sufficiently taxed for the present, but also that they themselves were not in the best condition to take their ship back and make their anxious voyage all over again. So they respectfully advised Tom to excuse himself, which he was very glad to do, although a slight shade of disappointment might have been observed upon my Lady Jane's face when she heard the splendid stripling denied admittance. There was a pause now, a sort of waiting silence which Tom could not understand. He glanced at Lord Hartford, who gave him a sign, but he failed to understand that also. The ready Elizabeth came to the rescue with her usual easy grace. She made reverence and said, Have we leave of the Prince's grace, my brother, to go? Tom said, Indeed, your ladyships can have whatsoever of me they will, for the asking. Yet would I rather give them any other thing that in my poor power lieth, than leave to take the light and blessing of their presence hence. Give ye good den, and God be with ye. Then he smiled inwardly at the thought. Tis not for naught I have dwelt but among princes in my reading, and taught my tongue some slight trick of their broidered and gracious speech withal. When the illustrious maidens were gone, Tom turned warily to his keepers and said, May it please your lordships to grant me leave to go into some corner and rest me. Lord Hartford said, So please your highness, it is for you to command, it is for us to obey. That thou shouldst rest is indeed a needful thing, since thou must journey to the city presently. He touched a bell and a page appeared, who was ordered to desire the presence of Sir William Herbert. This gentleman came straight away and conducted Tom to an inner apartment. Tom's first movement there was to reach for a cup of water, but a silk and velvet servitor seized it, dropped upon one knee, and offered it to him on a golden salver. Next, the tired captive sat down and was going to take off his buskins, timidly asking leave with his eye. But another silk and velvet discomforter went down upon his knees and took the office from him. He made two or three further attempts to help himself, but, being promptly forestalled each time, he finally gave up with a sigh of resignation and a murmured, Beshrew me, but I marvel they do not require to breathe for me also. 
Slippered and wrapped in a sumptuous robe, he laid himself down at last to rest, but not to sleep, for his head was too full of thoughts and the room too full of people. He could not dismiss the former, so they stayed. He did not know enough to dismiss the latter, so they stayed also, to his vast regret. And theirs. Tom's departure had left his two noble guardians alone. They mused a while, with much head-shaking and walking the floor. Then Lord St. John said, Plainly, what dost thou think? Plainly, then, this. The king is near his end. My nephew is mad. Mad will mount the throne, and mad remain. God protect England, since she will need it. Verily, it promises so, indeed. But have you no misgivings as to... as to... The speaker hesitated and finally stopped. He evidently felt that he was upon delicate ground. Lord Hartford stopped before him, looked into his face with a clear, frank eye and said, Speak on, there's none to hear but me. Misgivings as to what? I am full loath to the word, the thing that is in my mind. And thou so near to him in blood, my lord. But craving pardon if I do offend, seemeth it not strange that Madness could so change his port and manner? Not but that his port and speech were princely still, but they differ, in one unweighty trifle or another, from what his custom was aforetime. See with it not strange that madness should filch from his memory his father's very lineaments, the custom and observances that are his due from such as be about him, and leaving him his Latin, strip him of his Greek and French. My lord, be not offended, but ease my mind of its disquiet and receive my grateful thanks. It haunteth me, his saying he was not the prince, and so, peace, my lord, thou utterest treason. Hast forgot the king's command? Remember, I am party to thy crime, if I but listen. St. John paled and hastened to say, I was in fault, I do confess it. Betray me not. Grant me this grace out of thy courtesy and I will never think nor speak of this thing more. Deal not hardly with me, sir, else I am ruined. I am content, my lord, so thou offend not again, here or in the ears of others, it shall be as though thou hast not spoken. Thou needst not have misgivings. He is my sister's son. Are not his voice, his face, his form, familiar to me from his cradle? Madness can do all the odd conflicting things thou seest in him and more does not recall how the old Baron Marley, being mad, forgot the favour of his own countenance that he had known for sixty years, and held it was another's, nay, even claimed he was the son of Mary Magdalene, and that his head was made of Spanish glass, and sooth to say, he suffered none to touch it, lest by mischance some heedless hand might shiver it? Give thy misgivings easement, good, my lord. This is the very prince, I know him well and soon will be thy king. It may advantage thee to bear this in mind, and more dwell upon it than the other. After some further talk, in which the Lord St. John covered up his mistake, as well as he could, by repeated protests that his faith was thoroughly grounded now, and could not be assailed by doubts again, the Lord Hartford relieved his fellow-keeper, and sat down to keep watch and ward alone. He was soon in deep meditation, and evidently the longer he thought, the more he was bothered. 
by and by, he began to pace the floor and mutter, Tush, he must be the prince. Will any bee in all the land maintain there can be two, not of one blood and birth, so marvelously twinned? And even were it so, twere yet a stranger miracle that chance should cast the one into the other's place? Nay, tis folly, folly, folly. Presently he said, Now were he impostor and called himself prince, look you, that would be natural, that would be reasonable. But lived ever an impostor yet, who being called prince by the king, prince by the court, prince by all, denied his dignity and pleaded against his exaltation? No. By the soul of St. Swithin, no. This is a true prince. Gone mad. Good night.